Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. This is the full interview that I did with Dr. Campbell Price of Manchester University Museum. The first half of the discussion was released in episode 101b, and concerned immortal figures like Amunhotep, the son of Hapu. If you've already heard that first section and wish to skip ahead, you can find the second chapter beginning at 32 minutes into the podcast. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy a lovely discussion. My guest today is Dr. Campbell Price, the curator of the Egyptian collection at Manchester Museum and a researcher at Liverpool University. Dr. Price, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. Great. Thank you. <laughs> so, well, I, I can, yeah, kick off if you like. For those who aren't familiar with your work, how would you introduce yourself at a at a cocktail party? Well, as I frequently do. <laughs> um, <laughs> so my role at Manchester Museum as the curator of Egypt and uh, Sudan involves looking after the 18,000 uh, objects from ancient Egypt and Sudan we have in the collection. Uh, Manchester Museum is the largest university museum in Britain. We have four and a half uh, million specimens. So Egyptology, archaeology and anthropology are numerically quite small <laughs> compared to all the insects and animals we have. Uh, but the Egyptology collection is very significant because it was uh, acquired mainly uh, through archaeological excavation. So between you know the late 1880s and the early 1900s, uh, the, the collection was mainly formed. That means it's of great scientific value. Uh, so my main role is is to facilitate access to the collection for anyone from university researcher uh, who's doing uh, quite high level academic research to uh, families and school children who who want to know a little more about ancient Egypt. So it's it's a very rewarding job. Um, it's an incredible privilege to work with this incredible group of uh, objects. Uh, main focus of, of, of the job increasingly is about display, about community engagement, uh, and about exhibitions. But in my role as a honorary research fellow at Liverpool University, that's where I did my PhD studies, uh, my BA and MA before that, um, my role there is is kind of uh, to, to use that as an umbrella for... Uh, research when I'd finished my uh, PhD and I keep the association now by attending and giving seminars and uh, contributing a little bit of teaching when students from Liverpool, uh, the Egyptology programs there, come to Manchester. Okay. And in your, in the academic uh, resume that I have access to, a lot of your work has focused on things like private worship grave goods, uh, votive offerings, particularly in sacred sacred spaces. Yeah. Are you able to sort of introduce to my listeners exactly what what you're talking about with those sort of concepts? What are we talking about when we say something like private worship in ancient Egyptian contexts? Sure. Uh, that's a, a nicely phrased uh, question, uh, Dominic. It was something I think that developed out of a general interest, and I think a lot of Egyptologists share this, what happens for people who are not, what, what is life like for people who are not kings or queens? Mm. And in my uh, work, I mean, it, it began at Liverpool um, 
and kind of formalized in, in my PhD thesis, which I'm currently uh, revisiting uh, in order to, to publish it as a book. Oh, wonderful. But when we talk about private, <laughs> that implies there is some alternative public yes. uh, form of religion. And so I think in general, still, if you read a general Egyptology book, you read about the state religion. That's what the king does in the big temples. Mm-hmm. And then you read about private religion as being in houses um, or being something that, quotation marks, ordinary people uh, do. Mm. Of course, the, I think the reality is, is more um, nuanced than that. Of course, there is a complete spectrum of religious expression and experience that can be the king leading the, you know, the, the, the prime rituals of the state uh, in a big temple like Karnak, or it can be an ordinary person making, making a household offering uh, to a particular god to, to, to maybe intervene on behalf of a, a family member who's sick. Right. But in between these two poles, I think there's a, a real uh, sliding scale, and it is not black or white. You're not doing just private ritual or just state ritual. The two categories borrow from each other. And honestly, I, well, don't know what came first. Mm. Um <laughs> In terms of statues and monuments, one key point I always make this to students in, in Manchester and Liverpool, the evidence we have, and we'll come on to talk about statues and stele, these are, are monuments. For the most part, they're fairly uh, well executed and they belong to the elite. Very few people can read and write. Very few people have access to the resources to create nice monuments like stele. Uh, and and any kind of sizable statuary. So when we talk about private monuments, we're not talking about farmers and fields who, for the most part, could probably only afford to make a a kind of spoken prayer. Uh, When we talk about private monuments, we're really talking about the wealthy, the elite uh, monument commissioning few. To to bring some more nuance, perhaps, to the, the question that I originally posed, of course, it's easy to ask a question, say, what does what does non-royal or private worship mean in an ancient Egyptian context? But of course, we're talking about 3,000 plus years of cultural development. Mm-hmm. So at, the, at, a spe- at a specific focus level, currently, I am looking at New Kingdom material, but obviously in future, I will be reaching later periods. Sure. Now, a lot of your research has specialized particularly in the late, later areas, um, say post- post-1200 BC, broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. Do we see over time any degree of more more common access to monument making such as stelae? Do stelae become more numerous or do the types of people who are making them become more um, lower ranked in any respect? Yeah, sure. I think what we see with times, if you take the new kingdom as a starting point and there are of course interesting uh, predecessors for these these kind of developments before then in the middle kingdom even before that first intermediate period in old kingdom but in the new kingdom an egyptologist like jan asman german egyptologist written a lot about egyptian religion he would say people become more religious they become more pious as the as the new kingdom progresses and i think a key point is that mid 18th dynasty, yeah, say around the, the reign of Amenhotep III into the reign of Akhenaten and then after Akhenaten, um, you have the impression that people have a closer connection 
to a range of gods based on the monumental record. Is that because of the impact of the experience of the Amarna period, where Akhenaten completely shakes things up and revolutionizes, in a way, the, the attitude of, of the king and maybe the elite to the divine? Or, as a scholar like John Baines and also Elizabeth Froude, Oxford-based Egyptologists whose work I respect very much, they make, a, to me, quite a plausible argument that what we see when we look at stele particularly, and statues to a lesser extent, is greater display of religion, greater display of what uh, Asman might call personal piety. It's not that people in general are more religious, it's more that fashion has changed. So before the mid-New Kingdom, uh, the iconography of Steely does not generally favour or does not generally show private individuals um, directly interacting with the gods. That's what the king does. The king is the only qualified person to interact with, with, with deities, um, at least as far as iconography shows, up until the middle New Kingdom and after that Amarna period especially, you get private individuals those with access to, to the resources, as I say, access to texts, the, the right to display these things uh, being shown in these contexts. Yes, I think that's, that's probably a very key element that can be missed sometimes. I'm thinking particularly of an example for uh, my listeners' benefit from the statue of a man named Amun-Hotep, the son of Hapu, sure. who set up a large number of statues in a mortuary or religious context. They were found at Karnak, mm -hmm. whether they were originally set up there is another question. Yes, sure. On many of the statues, he specifically opens his texts with sayings such as, quote, given as a favor from the king to the temple of Amun for the prince, Amunhotep, son of Hapu, etc., etc. Sure. So offering formula themselves, even when supposedly in the context of a non-royal individual, are always very bound with that specific royal relationship. Absolutely. I mean, you, you pick a really excellent example there. First of all, as you say, Amenhotep, son of Hapu, has this extremely unusual level or status in society. He is someone at court who's very important. He gets favoured by the king, his namesake, Amenhotep III, uh, with this range of statues. And in some of them, he says explicitly, this statue was given as uh, the ancient word, as you as you may know, as hesut, gift, favour of the king. Now we know of this phrase, and I've I've been particularly interested in this in my own uh, research, especially recently. Um, we have this phrase from as early as the um, as the late Middle Kingdom. So people are, as you say, bound in with the prestige of the king giving you a statue, and it maybe points towards the actual logistical process. How do you get a statue set up in the temple? Well, the king has to give you permission. So being allowed into that space is, is a restricted privilege. And back to Amenhotep, son of Hapu, he follows on uh, from another chap earlier in the 18th dynasty, very well-known guy called Senenmut, who's a chief courtier of Queen Hatshepsut. What Amenhotep, son of Hapu, does is almost deliberately quote this phrase given uh, as a favour, as a hesit of the king, very few people say this statue is explicitly given as a favour, a gift of the king. 
out of the thousands of inscribed private statues we know of, maybe 60 in total, uh, I've, I've, I've found, have this phrase, explicitly saying that the statue was uh, given as favour of the king. So I, I can only imagine, you know, the, the reason they have this is to show off to other elites in the temple to say, so favoured was I um, that I can tell you explicitly this statue, which tends to be, this, the phrase appears on statues made of hard stones like granite, quartzite, uh, prestige statues, not necessarily limestone, which might be easier to get hold of, but granites, granodiorites, these hard stones that, that perhaps are under a royal monopoly uh, for access to the quarry. But the point about Amenhotep, son of Hapu, and something I find so interesting, uh, I agree with you, maybe wherever he sets them up originally is not where they're eventually found by archaeologists. We have this assumption that where things are found were their original location, very unlikely to be the case. Um, for places like Karnak, which were constantly being renovated, reused, reconfigured, and Amenhotep, son of Hapu, I'm sure, was uh, partly involved in that, he, have, he addresses in his texts, O oh, you people of Karnak. Now, at least some of them, maybe conceptually, were to be set up in Karnak, who knows, uh, but I agree with you, there could be the possibility they are moved, especially later in time when Amenhotep, the son of Hapu, has died. Generations after his death, he is venerated as a sage, a kind of culture hero. And then eventually, by the late period, uh, he's, he's worshipped as a god, as a full-on god of healing, god of medicine, a very important um, character. But when he addresses the people of Karnak, other Egyptologists have interpreted that as, you know, anyone who happens uh, to be passing any kind of um, passing yokel. I don't think that's the case. I think the access to uh, spaces like Karnak would be extremely uh, restricted. And the favour that is talked about, that privilege of getting a statue in Karnak, implies you have to be very special uh, to get within the area uh, of, of Karnak Temple and certainly to get inside. So we tend to overemphasize the public nature of those statues, especially Amenhotep, son of Hapu. Uh, I think he's addressing his peers. The people of Karnak are those people privileged um, and esteemed enough to get within uh, the temple walls. Yes, it's very much a... It's a de it's a declaration meant for the people who could understand it and appreciate it on the higher level that he's going for. Exactly, which does le does lead me um, quite nicely into our next sort of question: is many of the the votive stelae claim to show us a degree of personal interaction, either with gods or with the king or with the deceased or with with powerful figures in the realm, primarily the king. In your own understanding or research, what do these sort of monuments reveal of people like Amonhotep, the son of Hapu, or Senenmut, or later individuals? What does this reveal of their priorities in what they're trying to get across? Sure. Well, I think what what point that that keeps being repeated and really struck me, and looking at New Kingdom stuff, but also later on, there's a fairly, in some sense, it's fairly one sided in that you ask, your priorities are for eternity and for the afterlife, and you want things, you want offerings 
conceptually, um, whether or not practically, they're posthumous in the sense that they they want good things in the afterlife. So food, drink, um, nice smelling ointments, linen, um, a good burial in the West, things that only uh, pertain to life after death. Um, they they don't seem in general to offer much in return. It's not like the walls of a temple where the king offers justice uh, in the form of the goddess Ma'at. It's not so much of a reciprocal arrangement. You are simply begging for things. And in some cases, uh, there are literal begging statues. Mm. That does seem to change slightly. And Amenhotep, son of Hapu, is a key person in this, where he gets into a kind of rhetorical dialogue of reciprocity. Mm. So some of Amenhotep, son of Hapu's statues address this public. As we've said, it's likely to be the people who understand the text, who have physical and intellectual access to the text uh, in the temple. But if what he's asking for, <clears throat> it strikes me, is he says, if you, you, you come to my statue and pray, um, give me offerings, I will have a word with the gods on your behalf. I will repeat he says, I will repeat petitions or prayers uh, to the gods. So immediately he's getting into this dialogue, this promised dialogue. If you do something for me, I'll do something for you. Now that ensuring that your statue remains effective and noticed in the temple. There are several ways of doing this, but Amenhotep, son of Hapu, is a real trendsetter <laughs> in that he is asking specifically for mm. people who pass by who see the statue uh, to do something for him because he promises to do something for them in return. And this continues maybe in deliberate reference to people like Amenhotep, son of Hapu, uh, in, in the late period, uh, at Karnak at least, uh, and at some other sites. Mm. I think that's a very good point. And for, for the benefit of my listeners, I will uh, repeat a quote that he comes, because I have his statue inscriptions before me. Oh, great. He <laughs> It's a slightly long one but he specifically says yeah <laughs> he's quite long-winded <laughs> uh, i'm quite fond of him for that yeah but it great. can get a bit tedious when it's mostly the repetition that gets tedious but he specifically says oh people of ipet suit which is the general karnak luxor region oh people of ipet suit those who desire to see amun come to me i will report your petitions because i am the reporter for this god then on a, another statue in the, in the same environment, he says, present libations to me with that which is in your hand, because I am the reporter whom the king has placed for hearing the words of supplication and in order to present the affairs of the two banks, which based on what we were saying earlier with the reception that the literate educated audience has when they see this, he's essentially perpetuating his worldly authority in the afterlife as well. He's maintaining his privileged position as a courtier and as a wise counsellor of the king, and he's making sure that that endures forever. So it all sounds very nice, and it sounds very generous on his behalf, but there's always that very strong element of self-service going on. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, presumably, because of his status um, after death, he was quite friendly with and quite close to Amenhotep III while he was alive. And some scholars have even implied that the, the 
location of those statues was intended, Amenhotep son of Hapus were in, intended to be located close to uh, colossal statues of the king he served, Amenhotep III. Um, but you're absolutely right. He's using his authority in life to, as a kind of a, a, a carrot, if you like, a stick and a carrot, uh, to get people who are passing by uh, to look on him as someone reliable, as someone who, and let's not underestimate, who you would choose, you would pick out in a courtyard, which was presumably fairly full of the statues of the elite. Uh, he would stand out. Mm. Why are you going to look at my statue and not someone else's? Well, if I promise this special service, you're likely to come to me and not to the other statues that don't make those promises. Also, the physical appearance of, of Amenhotep, son of Papu's uh, statues, uh, several of them are scribal. Uh, that's one of the less usual forms of statues, uh, I suspect, at Karnak. So it would stand out uh, physically from the crowd. Building on what you were just saying, something occurred to me, and that's usually the sign of a good interview is when it gives you some ideas. Good. <laughs> if, we if, we if we imagine these statues, whether they're of Amunhotep, son of Hapu, or any elite individual who set them up in a temple or tomb courtyard, sure. a public space, they, the attraction that a statue like this pulls mm -hmm. in terms of what it offers, such as being an intermediary for the gods, that has a would presumably mm -hmm. have a wonderful snowball effect in the sense that as a small group of people become aware of this statue, they begin to gravitate towards it and they bring their offerings, bread, flowers, water, offerings, wine. <laughs> Those offerings begin to pile up. Sure. And very quickly, within a few months, presuming it's not cleaned too regularly, you would have a statue that was very obviously the object of great veneration compared to those around it. Yes. And the um, the immediate example that comes to my mind, although it might not be obvious, is the is the grave of Jim Morrison in Paris. The singer from The Doors, his grave in Paris is abundantly clear because it's always covered in candles and flowers and graffiti from fans of his music. Yes, excellent. A, a figure like Amun Hotep, the son of Hapu, while less wild... <laughs> We suspect, who knows? His monuments might have filled a similar role in a sacred space. I absolutely agree with you, Dominic. I've, I've written a little bit about this myself, and it's the um, it's the appreciation, as you say, of, of a sacred space, of the realities of sacred space and human behaviour. And I absolutely agree there would be some kind of snowball effect and there would be a desire, and we can evidence this desire because of something called archaism and the deliberate copying of styles from the past, uh, forms of sculpture which are repeated much later, that reference what I've, I've called in print uh, successful statues. Um, but the key point about attraction, I think Amenhotep, son of Hapu, absolutely was doing it in a self-conscious, self-serving way. By having more than one statue, you optimise the chances that people will give offerings to this. Um, it happens into the late period. Sen and Mut, you know, has 25, 26 statues that we know of, probably originally many more. Um, you set these statues up, not just in courtyards, but at key points in chapels, uh, even there's discussion of statues. Uh, being set up in, in elite granaries, um, although the context is, is, is not absolutely clear, to optimise your chances of interaction 
and that is what it's all about. And again, I think Amenhotep, son of Hapu, is a trendsetter. When we talk about votive statues, yes, they're votive in the sense they're somehow gifts to gods, uh, and they show your piety and your respect in sacred space, but they're also billboards. They're also, as, as one student said to me, clickbait, spend a moment, <laughs> give an offering maybe, ideally, um, but at least say aloud the name of that individual. And I think the success of those statues, and that's absolutely the right word, is assured by the fame of the individual, by the form of the statue, and we can measure that fame by the fact that people like Sa- Amenhotep, son of Hapu, has statues which seem to be copied uh, in later uh, forms of sculpture, in Karnak at least. Mm, absolutely. So I like the idea of clickbait. It's, yeah. it's quite funny. It's it's almost like a person on the street saying, have you considered worshipping Amenhotep son of Hapu today? <laughs> yes. Yeah. We, have a, we have a special two for one offerings. I uh, know. It's incredible. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So an individual like, like this man or Let's let's move to a later period, slightly perhaps post post Amana, post Ramesset. Yeah, we are moving into a different theological and political context. Sure. And broadly speaking, after the after the breakdown of, I guess you could call the centralized monarchy of the of the high Ramesses. Sure. Yeah. And with the twentieth twentieth and twenty first dynasty, sort of diminishing broadly speaking yeah i don't i don't like that word too much but um, yeah let's let's use it for now yeah yeah um do we see any kind of changes in the way that the elites are expressing themselves in these kinds of monuments specifically you know votive stelae or statues are they at different periods are they trying new things or are they looking back to more prosperous times i think as you say, we can only base our judgments on what is preserved. First and foremost, towards the end of the 20th dynasty, into the 21st, there is a marked downturn in the preserved um, instance of sculpture. So to take Karnak as an example, and in particular the Karnak cachette, this incredible find of, of over a thousand stone statues, uh, under um, the, the 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 court of the um, of the uh, the the eighth pylon at Karnak, uh, that very central space excavated by uh, the French Egyptologist Georges Legrand in the um, between 1903 and, and 1906. If you use that as an index of what kind of sculpture was produced, which has some drawbacks, but you can see, you know, there's Middle Kingdom stuff, there's New Kingdom stuff, there's Late Period stuff, but there's a marked absence of anything really from Dynasty 21, royal um, or uh, private. And I think that has a lot to do with the economic situation, although not entirely economic situation, but also the focus of interest at the time seems to, for the elite, go on to the coffin and the the mummy itself. So the treatment of the body, uh, the treatment of the coffin with these very dense um, scenes, uh, theological scenes, excerpts from the Book of the Dead, what might once have decorated a tomb chapel, or for that um, matter, 
monuments like Steely uh, get shrunk down and, and, and compressed onto the coffin. So as a result, you don't really get much in the way of private monuments for the elite uh, in temples, as far as we can tell. Uh, it really focuses on the grave. With Dynasty 22, there seems to be a change, and then new stone sculpture uh, reappears, and that looks back, that seems to look back to the 18th Dynasty. And in that sense, um, they seem to skip over the Ramesside period. In some sense, um, the glorious past for someone living even in Dynasty 21, we know there's, there's deliberate reference uh, into the 18th Dynasty uh, from Dynasty 21, but certainly in Dynasty 22, the faces on some of the sculptures are, for all the world, like Tutmosaid, uh, kind of Hatshepsut, Tutmosis III um, faces. So I think there's, there's archaism, and I guess there's always archaism, there's always looking to the past. That's why Egyptian art is so uh, conservative, conservative small c um, throughout pharaonic times um, but you do get it going into the third intermediate period with the deliberate selection of uh, images which presumably statues would still have been visible uh, statues like Amenhotep son of Hapus or other uh, important people from, from the past would act as models whether there's a a change in people's expectations of the afterlife at this point is difficult to say. As you've suggested, all we have um, are the elite expressions. Uh, we can kind of gauge the level of expression, but maybe not the level of the beliefs. We don't know for sure what people believed. Certainly. So broadly speaking, as as time went on, people continued to look back to the mid 18th dynasty as the sort of the touchstone for their um, public expressions of quote unquote piety. I think so. Yeah. It, and I mean, I'm, we're speaking in very, very general terms also. Um, and you could take examples that might argue against this, but to come back to that example of the statues said to be given as a gift of the king, given as favour of the king. Mm. And this is something I've looked into in, in some detail and I find very interesting. So those phrases um, basically stop with um, Amenhotep, son of Hapu. Uh, there are a couple of outliers, but they don't really, the phrase doesn't appear at all in the Ramesside period. Mm. Um, and it reappears in Dynasty 22. So there seems to be an idea of statuary emerges uh, in Dynasty 22. Uh, the idea of the favoured one, even the, the, the sign favoured one, the, the hesi or a person given hesut a favour, is written with the sign of a little block statue. <laughs> and this seems to deliberately reference those statues from the high 18th dynasty that are given as favour of the king. Okay. When people are choosing to reference a favoured person, they are thinking, I'm sure, of Amenhotep, son of Hapu, of Senin, of these great viziers from Dynasty 18, and less uh, their Ramesside uh, um, successors. Mm. Almost like how every, every head of state gets their official portrait, but not every portrait endures in the public memory. No, absolutely. Absolutely.
Moving on from this, Campbell has a new book recently out called The Pocket Museum, Ancient Egypt. It is a look or a study of objects, both familiar and unfamiliar from all around the world, all reproduced in glorious color and great detail. Mm. And it's an excellent introduction to ancient Egyptian material culture in a selection that the average member of the public probably hasn't seen before because they're either squirreled away in 20 different museums and university collections or simply because they're just not as famous as some more grandiose objects. So with the Pocket Museum collection, Mm. the objects specifically, how did you choose the objects that come into the book? What were your priorities? When the publisher approached me with this idea, I jumped at the chance because I've always wanted to do something like this. And it was a chance to use uh, my knowledge, I guess, of of these lesser known collections or lesser lesser known objects to illustrate ancient Egyptian culture. Although it's true that this was a pre-existing series, so there are other books about ancient Rome and ancient Greece, and so I had to fit pre-established categories. So that was a little bit of a challenge. The categories were somewhat overlapping, as you'll appreciate if you, if you know anything about ancient Egyptian culture. So there was uh, the king and the, the state, uh, religion and ritual, households and domestic things, and death and the afterlife. So a piece of jewellery from the tomb of Tutankhamen showing him interacting with the goddess fits all four of those categories. <laughs> so it was kind of a, a difficult choice sometimes about how to group things. Mm-hmm. Um, just purely practically, uh, some of the original suggestions I made to the publisher, it wasn't possible to get photographs, good photographs of the objects. So I had to, to renege on them and, and uh, drop them from my list. But it was a really nice opportunity to present things especially that are less well known to the public in a fairly if i say so myself a fairly accessible format it's chronological 200 pieces from the pre-dynastic to the roman period wonderful and do you remember how many objects there are did you just say that so there are just shy of 200 but for me especially working at manchester museum it was a good chance uh, to showcase some of our pieces, of course, there are some pieces that you have to include, like, you know, the Rosetta Stone or the Mummy Mask of Tutankhamen or the Head of Nefertiti. I think they could, people expect those. And I was under some obligation to, to include those. But there are plenty of other things that people don't know. So, for example, uh, one of my favorites uh, that I don't think the general public would know is an ostracon, a flake of limestone. Uh, which sits in the hand quite nicely. An ostracon in ancient Egypt, quite common. Uh, the site of Deir el Medina, a very literate community, unusually literate community of tomb builders who worked on uh, the, the royal tombs in the Valley of the Kings and the New Kingdom. They seem to have used what are essentially ancient Egyptian post-it notes. And so ostraca the plural of ostracon, singular, uh, a really valuable insight, not just into the business and life of the community, but into people's thought processes. So one ostracon we have at Manchester Museum shows a quick sketch which shows a funeral taking place. 
So there's a, a cross section of a, a burial shaft, some chambers underneath, and people mourning the ritual of, of taking the mummy down inside the tomb, down a tomb shaft. Um, and one of the individuals, one of the, the, the officiants, is wearing, uh, quite clearly is wearing a jackal mask. Now, given that this is just a quick sketch, it's not a formal tomb scene, this is not an idealised conceptualized depiction of the god Anubis. This is more like reportage. This is what should or has happened, uh, should have happened or has happened or should happen in the future. And it's, it's a nice little indication that people might have worn masks in this kind of ritual. Mm. And it, it syncs up quite well, I think, with those the physical masks that have survived of Anubis. Yes, there are a handful, aren't there? Yeah. There's a small hand, handful of them made of cartonage, usually, yeah. although I think there's also one, one made of clay yeah. that appear like they might have been either perched on top of the head or over the face Yes, some, in some situation. So maybe this is the, um, the indication we have in this very, very small sketch that this kind of thing, thing happened. I mean, it's a very humble object, but it's, it's definitely one of, one of my favorites. With the, with the tomb that we see on this ostracon and i will provide an image on the website for listeners we see a number of uh women gathered around the outside of the tomb apparently mourning they're raising their heads up hands up to their hair yeah and there's a man holding what appears to be an incense burner yes and perhaps a libation pouring onto the ground beside the tomb sure now the most fascinating part of it at least personally for me is the chap in the very middle who appears to be climbing back up the tomb now where this strikes me as quite interesting is to the best of my knowledge the Deir el medina tombs or at least the ones right next to the village are often rock cut and they tend to go down small staircases or ramps yes they're not so much the shaft tombs at Deir el medina itself Mm -hmm. so assuming that we are seeing a post record of an actual burial would this be would this be taking place outside the village, perhaps up near the tombs of the nobles at Sheikh Abdel Kurna or one of the shaft tombs up in the hills near Deir al-Bahari, perhaps? Yes, I think the, the Kurna tombs are interesting because you do get, in at least a couple of examples, they do have a shaft and the shaft have these footholds in. And so what you see in this Ostracon sketch seems to be a man, yeah, either going down into or coming back out of uh, one of these tomb shafts. And although it would personally terrify me, (laughs) um, if you're quite dexterous, you can quite nimbly go in and in and out of the shaft in this way. Um, So it's, it's that kind of resonance between this little sketch and maybe not necessarily, as you say, the tombs at Deir el Medina, but other Theban tombs. And who knows that that raises the question about what is this sketch for? Why is this the only one we seem to have of a funeral? Because it seems to have no names or anything. Yeah, it's not clear. It's not clear at all. It's not, it's not um, accompanied by a text. Um, it was given by the the great Egyptologist Alan Gardner, Sir Alan Gardner, to uh, Manchester uh, Museum in the early 20th century, and he collected it from the West Bank of Thebes. Gosh, that was generous of him. <laughs> it was, yes. I would, I would not have wanted to give that up. No, no. And it is a, a really key piece, really key piece. Another question, actually. Um, well, first first of all, a sort of 
I guess, spitballing an idea is, as Ostracasari are quite transportable to some degree, Yeah, you almost, you almost have to wonder if this is somebody sending a report of a funeral to a family member at Daryl Medina, say, yeah. you know, back in, back in their hometown. Sorry you couldn't make it to the funeral, but here's how it went. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it could be. Who knows? I mean, assuming, uh, yeah, assuming the people involved were at least semi-literate, it's surprising there's no text on it. But, yes. yeah, who knows? Who knows? Is it maybe something, I don't know, like uh, Herodotus talks about these different styles of mummification you get offered by the embalmer, maybe it's different styles of funeral or different styles of tomb. Who knows? <laughs> you can either have the stick figure example with the mask of Anubis, or you can have the full hieroglyphics. Yeah, who knows? Intriguing. Finally, actually, just to draw to the to particularly the audience's attention, which I think is this is one of my favourite little aspects of this thing. Apart from the man climbing out, is that in the bottom right of this tomb we clearly have a, a previous burial, yes. possibly two of yes. them. There's a small chamber that's been sealed off, and there are two bodies lying inside it with what appears to be some offerings or some baskets next yeah. to them. As many people may not know, many of these tombs were not sealed away forever. They were reopened, re-entered, reused yes. frequently throughout throughout history, often by the same family or you know different generations of an extended community. Are you able to Absolutely. comment on that at all to the extent that that kind of fits in with our broader understanding of personal engagement with the with uh, death and the divine? Yes, I, I think that's uh, a very nice place you, you, you gave of the issue. It's a kind of indication of, of the social reality of living somewhere like Deir el Medina, where it's not simply that after a funeral you forget about that single individual. There are essentially family vaults that would necessitate reopening at fairly regular intervals uh, the tomb uh, in order to access the burial chamber. And presuming, based on the style of this piece, it's New Kingdom, it's Ramesside, say, in date, mm. this is something that's happening then already. And we know it becomes an issue because there are, you know, the tombs of, you know, Synegium, at Deir el-Medina, when they were discovered, were packed out. Uh, with burials, you know, every available space, because space was at a premium, um, was, was used. And that kind of indicated by the sketch. Um, what really happens, and this leads on to my other, um, another favourite object in the Pocket Museum book that I included, um, it, it becomes what what scholars like uh, uh, Kathleen Cooney uh, have, have have characterized as a real crisis, where there is some kind of economic downturn and access to wood becomes compromised, uh, decent quality wood, and so what you have to turn to doing is turfing out grandpa, metaphorically speaking, uh, figuratively speaking, uh, and reusing coffins wholesale. Um, and we've got texts that talk about, well, fairly benign texts that talk about inventories of, of tombs at Deir el-Medina, basically just checking what is in position in, in some tombs. Others that talk about the cost of a coffin and it being quite expensive and you might have to 
supplement the cost with a bit of you know footboard from a bed or you know some other piece of furniture so there's a cost attached but by the 21st dynasty the widespread reuse of coffins um, is a real feature of the funerary industry for the elite again let's not imagine this is every uh, farmer uh, in the field it's not they're probably quite happy with a simple uh, shallow burial uh, on the edge of the desert with a few pots and a few beads but for the elite the consumers it's a consumer economy uh, you want to show off at the funeral so you have to reuse recommission old pieces so one of the other rather poignant examples i chose was uh, an example of a coffin of a child it's been reused uh, there's a prince prince amenemhat um who is re well he himself hasn't used it the dead don't bury themselves but someone has chosen to use an older based on the style uh, ramesside coffin um, for the burial of a very, very young uh, child, maybe three, four-year-old child. Mm. So even within the coffin, there's archive uh, photos that went along with this, discovered by the Metropolitan Museum of Art mission at Western Thebes. It's ended up in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The name on the coffin has been rubbed out, and then a new name has been kind of uh, sketched in. But it just shows that even a son of the king is using these these kinds of um, ploys, even the royal family have to use uh, coffins again. Mm, what what strikes me as most bizarre about that particular burial is that it's it's a three year old child in what seems to be an adult's coffin. Yes, it's a it's a larger coffin, but not massive. I wouldn't say it's one hundred and four centimeters. I, I mean, the scale of it. I think the scale is included in in the book, um, which is a nice feature of the Pocket Museum series. They show often when you see a picture of something, you don't appreciate quite how big it is, but they have a silhouette either of a, a, a hand or a standing uh, person, and that allows okay. you to kind of access the the scale of the object. So it's not like the, the Mona Lisa is a surprise because it's only the size of a postage stamp. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so the, the length is, 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 is one meter. So it it's the the child inside is is small, but originally the coffin was made presumably for for someone quite young as well. Okay. Do you, out of curiosity, um, do you know if the coffin was sort of lined with packing to give him some stability in there? No, and and that's something that's not uncommon. We have a couple of examples of this in Manchester Museum, where it seems the coffin, even the original intended coffin. Uh, was kind of off the peg and they don't fit. There's not good fit. So the body, even of an adult, is quite small inside and it rattles around. And there might be a little bit of extra linen, but it's not packed out, as you might say. Oh, I have to feel sorry for them. I don't know if you've, if you've ever slept on a camp bed that's slightly too small, but yeah. It's a hard night. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't seem to have been a concern for... Um, for, for, for a lot of, of people, at least in the third intermediate period when the uh, mummies in the Manchester Museum are a date from, uh, it seems to have been quite standard. So, uncomfortable for eternity. Say lovey. <laughs> Say l'amour. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, off topic slightly, I'm just curious to have your input on it. Many of, as you mentioned, the third intermediate period, Dynasty 21, 22, 
coffins are being reused and relabeled. Yes. To, to what extent do you think that actually is a very serious problem with the pharaonic coffins that we have from the caches? Because speaking speaking privately with um, Aidan Dodson, yeah, I've you know I've I've gained a great, greater appreciation for many of the sort of the often undiscussed questions behind these these particular burials. Yeah. In your understanding of this of the sort of practice, do you think it's how likely do you think it is that we have quite a few that we may have royal mummies that actually are not royal at all, but are mislabeled coffins or mismatched perhaps? Yeah. Well, I mean Aidan Dodson knows this this very well because um he knows the, the material extremely well. But the issue with yeah, those royal mummy cachettes is that the interpretation is is based on perhaps the result of quite confused labelling yeah, in the twenty first dynasty. So maybe they don't know. So 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 it's kind of musical chairs or musical coffins. You know, we would all love to believe that that incredible mummy is Ramesses the second, and that wonderfully well preserved mummy is Seti the first, and there are other bits of circumstantial evidence, I guess, to to, to suggest that, but. Um, as Aidan Dodson knows himself, the confusion at the time cannot easily be solved uh, by something like uh, DNA testing, because DNA testing, and we've done it in Manchester Museum, is highly unreliable. And I think we put too much uh, stock, um, hold uh, too much um, hope uh, for for the uh, cast iron guarantee these tests might give us. So there may be misattributions simply based on, on the coffins. And it raises the interesting point about why certain people got certain coffins. So Ramesses, what we think is Ramesses the, the, the Great, Ramesses the Second, is in a very nice coffin. Was it his originally? Was it Horemhebs? There's, there's maybe some good arguments that it belonged originally to Horemheb. Um, and maybe less important kings are given less nice coffins. Who knows? Who knows? Um, and is there some element of magic, or to call it somewhat dismissively magic, where the coffin of some great king of the past is imbued with, you know, some added value? And it's not simply that you're making do and mend because these are the only coffins you have, but because there is some magical value. We know the kings in Tanis are using sarcophagi, you know, sarcophagi from the Valley of Kings, from Merim Ptah. That is a lot of effort to go to, to take a granite sarcophagus from Thebes up to Tanis. Is it simply reuse, or is it wanting to be associated with great kings from the past, or some magical value, added value to the materiality uh, of the sarcophagus or the coffin? Who knows? It is a very complicated picture. Yes, it's it's very confu- it's a very confused scenario as far as I can tell. Even the most I think optimistic reading of the of the reburial process, you would have a very hard time s- saying that they they knew exactly who they were burying and they were confident yes. of that. Yes, exactly. Especially, I would think, especially with the rash the rash of tomb robberies that were being just a few decades before the the amount of confusion in some of those tombs like you look at Horemheb's tomb even now it's a mess yes. it's an absolute mess yes 
and I can only imagine it was much worse back then. It's just it boggles the mind how they how we can be confident of many. Yeah, the, the question um, maybe you're alluding to of the existence maybe of another cache that simply was so badly damaged that we've we're missing things like exactly like Horemheb uh, simply because the mummies were were bashed up in an attempt to to get hold of uh, goodies that may not even have been there. So. Yeah, quite tragic case. Maybe it's a it's a dangerous fantasy. I've always hoped to hope that Horam Hib would come to light. Yeah, at some point. Yeah, if you're you're fond of it, but same lovely. <laughs> now let's uh, we'll get back on track and move on to the next next section. Okay, so we've covered the coffin and the ostracon. Yep. So let's talk about the the recaped pectoral. Um. Pectoral, uh, yes. So the Ricca pectoral, so-called because it's from the site of uh, Ricca, which is just south of the Fayum area, um, is an absolutely stunning piece of cloisonné uh, jewellery, so semi-precious stones set in, in gold, kind of gold-mounted, absolutely beautiful suite of, of jewellery. It's not just the pectoral, but other smaller pieces of gold jewellery that were examined recently by a, a team under a scanning electron microscope. So we got some great photographs uh, of the detail and incredible, exquisite detail of the work. The technique is incredible. Um, the pectoral, the pectoral itself is interesting because of its find context. It was discovered in situ, lying on a, a mummified body by a guy called Reginald Engelbach, early 20th century <laughs> um, and he describes clearing out a burial chamber a burial chamber at the bottom of a shaft uh, the ceiling had, had caved in but he moved the blocks and discovered another body uh, with the mummy with an outstretched arm clutching the jewellery and so here was an incredible case of a tomb robber uh, presumably killed in the act of robbing this jewellery and then the ceiling caved in. <laughs> so a better example of the mummy's cursed in action I cannot think of. That is wonderful. Um, it's very dramatic. And a predecessor at Manchester Museum described in the 1980s the museum was burgled uh, and someone smashed a, a, a display case in order to steal the Ricca pectoral and uh, managed to sever an artery on the bro- broken glass. Uh, so the curse of the, the pectoral uh, strikes again, they didn't manage to, uh, to, to make away with it. It's just an extremely fine uh, piece of jewellery, presumably belonging to a woman, although the original excavation report speculated it was the burial of a man, based on the style of the of the jewellery, chances are it was it was probably a woman based on other finds, things like uh, oyster shell jewellery, which has been found in other late Middle Kingdom contexts, always belonging to a woman. Uh, and the fact that the pectoral has similar um, parallels, slightly more elaborate parallels in the way of princesses. What it depicts is not absolutely clear. There's a series of symbols. There are two birds. No one's quite sure what the birds are. You would expect, because they're perched on hieroglyphs for gold, that they would be falcons. But, you know, you don't need to be an ornithologist to see that they don't look like falcons. No, they look more like kites or... Yeah, I thought maybe kites, and maybe in reference to Isis and and Nephthys, 
because we know that kites are shown on symbols for gold, uh, the head and foot of esophagus to represent the sisters of Osiris. Uh, some people have speculated they might be crows and the reference maybe to, to Near Eastern uh, iconography. We know that the technique of gold working could have, have had influences from the Near East. Um, but it's just a very fine piece of jewellery, the, the height of Middle Kingdom jewellers' art. I don't think, honestly speaking, that, that later New Kingdom jewellery ever quite reached that level of execution, detailed execution. Uh, so Tutankhamun stuff is lovely, but it's not as good. I think I have three princesses from the Third who might give it a run for their money. Sure. Other than that, no, I can't think of any examples. Sure. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to describe in words how lovely mm. it is. It's you know, it's multi-hued, multiple colors. Great, lovely pair of wide jet eyes at the top yeah. with a sun disc in between them. Um, a lotus blossom at the bottom, supporting a, a palm frond, perhaps of some sort. Are you able to? Yeah, we're not clear what that is. Okay. On some kind of central um, scepter, it's meant to represent. Who knows? Mm, on, uh, I'm looking. I'm looking at the reverse now. It possibly could be the Ishid tree or something like that. Maybe, yeah. Or Persia tree. You know, multiple colors: blues, greens, uh, bright oranges, and lovely, lovely detailing. It's it all just comes together very, very nicely. Whoever, yeah. Whoever commissioned this had a really lovely idea of what they wanted. Yes, absolutely. It really implies that it's a royal gift again. Um, and we have uh, the name of King Sinwazrit II and King Sinwazrit III feature on other pieces of jewellery from the collection. So it's mid to late 12th dynasty, a very nice high point of the jeweller's art. Now, so this would be worn around the neck, presumably? Yes, I mean, that was presumably how it was found based on the excavation report. Um, and we know of other examples uh, of pectorals of that type found in, in situ and, and uh, depicted in in two and, and three dimensions. I've worn it myself uh, when we were, I just wanted to try it. Um, and it sits quite, <laughs> quite nicely. I love to tell the tale. Um, it's a well-known piece. Um, in Manchester Museum, we have a postcard of it, and the postcard sells very well. Um, very attractive piece of jewellery. We even sold replicas of it in the museum shop. But one of the reasons I included it in the book, Pocket Museum, is because it's a popular book. It's by Thames and Hudson. Chances are more people are likely to see this, and I wanted to share it with, with a wider uh, wider group of people. Absolutely. It's gorgeous and I now I now feel obliged to go back to my episodes on Sinusaret the second or third and add add this piece to the discussion just as a aside because it's so wonderful. Yeah, should. One detail that I want to draw people's attention to, which is really quite wonderful, is that the the bird's legs mm-hmm. are detached from their actual bodies. They've been they've been fused to the gold the hieroglyph for gold at the bottom but the bodies themselves are actually separate. So the artist had to put the birds in place and then arrange the gold, the gold filigree or wire to, to go along with it. It's quite, quite delightful. Yeah. We know from our archives in Manchester Museum, uh, Flinders Petrie, the archaeologist, uh, well-known archaeologist, writes to the curator with a suggestion for how to restore objects from this oh. group. 
because remember they were um, crushed by uh, by the ceiling caving in um, onto the, oh, the burial, and so there was some speculation about well, yeah, the damage that possible modern restoration, and it is a problem in museums where things have been touched mm-hmm. up in in modern times, um, but. Even so, uh, you still get the impression of the, the extremely fine work on uh, on this piece. Mm. And what's not actually apparent from the front, but is apparent from the back, is that the legs are made of very thin sheets of gold that have been folded into the correct shape of the leg and the claws. It's yes, <clears throat> it doesn't come across from the front, but from the back, it's really quite yeah. quite amazing. Oh, what a lovely piece! Thank mm. you for thank you for introducing yeah. it and sharing it. Mm. So let's move on to our final. Our final piece from your your personal highlights, as it were, the statue of Hor Samtek from yeah. the twenty sixth dynasty discovered in the Delta. Yes, so it's discovered at the site of Tel Yahudia, uh, so towards the east uh, of the Delta. Um, this is a personal favourite of mine, of course, because <laughs> I, I love late period uh, private statues. And that's what I did my PhD thesis on. And so this is the only late period private statue in, um, in Manchester Museum. And I recently uh, published uh, an article uh, about it, discussing it in a fish rift for Anthony Leahy, a very um, uh, respected scholar of first millennium BC Egypt. So the statue is quite badly mm. damaged. But again, like a lot of things in museums, you really get a sense of the original quality of it. It's made of quartzite, which is this beautiful orangey red, ruddy colour. And again, as we spoke about before, you would choose this to stand out. Uh, the choice of stone, the choice of that quartzite is interesting. I guess the quarry it came from would be Gebel Ahmar. And of course, Ahmar in Arabic means red. So the red mountain, Gebel Ahmar, um, is, is, is not terribly far away from modern Cairo. So not so far away from El Yahudia. Um, and imagining yourself walking into a temple, it's almost completely gone now at Tel Yahudia. Um, but other elite people may have had statues there made of limestone, made of granodiorite, dark stones. But by choosing this quartzite, I think Hor, Hor Samtek, uh, really stands out. Um, it's a really striking piece. The, the toes are wonderfully splayed. There's a real feeling of, of naturalism in the, the bent knees. Um, although the hands are very hieroglyphic in a way, they, they, the hands supporting this image of a god. Um, the, the overall concept of the statue, I've, I've written a bit about mm. this since um, something quite interests me, is that by the late period, it's quite common to have statues showing individuals, and by individuals I mean only ever elite men, women are never shown in this pose, um, supporting, protecting, displaying, mm. asserting... Um, the status of of being in contact with a god. So either in a shrine, a little neos shrine, these so-called neosphorus statues, as in this example, or theophorus, where you're in direct contact with the image of the god. Presumably, this is a reference to the priestly favor or privilege of having access to the god's statue. 
but it also enters into to this very interesting dialectic we mentioned before about reciprocity. So Amenhotep, son of Hapu, says, hey, you people who come into Karnak, uh, do offerings for me, say prayers for me. Here, the dialogue, the, the, the reciprocal relationship is not between the statue owner just and the public or the priests or the initiates who are allowed into the temple. It's between the subject, Hor, Samtek, and the god themselves. So we have other texts that talk explicitly about, I will protect your image and you will protect me. And who is this god? So the god depicted isn't labelled, but we know the from the preserved traces it seems to be a lioness goddess, perhaps a form of Bastet. We know from this area of the Delta other statues that, that have images of Bastet on. Um, the text isn't fully preserved, so maybe there was a prayer to the Bastet. But by having this relationship between this individual, or Samtek, uh, he's essentially saying, I will preserve your image, I will support, display, assert the image for eternity, and in return, you will do the same for me. And we have other examples where this is made explicit in the text. And it may be something as simple as, other statues that don't include images of gods in their form are maybe more susceptible to deliberate damage. And we know deliberate damage was extremely common. Uh, there are curses against it. If you look at most museum collections, you see deliberate damage or reworking or usurpation of statues. Here, it's almost as if the statue's owner, uh, owner is cowering behind uh, the protective <laughs> image of God and using it as a talisman to ward off uh, the potential chisel of someone uh, intent on damaging or reusing the statue, basically saying, don't hit me, I've got an image of the god in front of me. Something bad will happen to you if you damage the image of a god rather than something a private person. <laughs> we, all know that. we all know that one friend who hides behind the other friends when they get into a fight. <laughs> yes, exactly. So this... This seems to be the case. I mean, the chap in question is high status. He is essentially the admiral of the fleet, uh, admiral of the, the Mediterranean fleet in the 26th dynasty, when we know the Egyptian royal family were engaging mercenaries, especially Greek mercenaries, to fight in the Egyptian army and navy. Uh, one of his titles, one of Hor's titles is overseer of the royal fighting ships in the Great Green. The Great Green must be the Mediterranean. Um, but he also talks about being in charge of a group called the um, the the Hasut, the 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 kind of the foreign lands. And some people speculated that he may have been the governor of Cyprus. But I suspect, actually, that the term now has been translated in different contexts as mercenaries. And we know mercenaries, as I say, especially Greek mercenaries, uh, were housed in the region of of, um, of the eastern Dela, delta near Tel Yahudia. But it seems that this chap was in charge of the mercenaries and deployed them in some uh, function uh, in the navy. Fascinating. So we have we may we have, may have at least speaking a small glimpse of a of a very different political and military world than that of the the classic pharaohs whom everyone knows. Absolutely. 
Absolutely, yes. Mm. But arguably, in in many ways, one that's a lot more interesting in its own way. Yes, at this time, when Egypt is much more in an international world, that's what I call that chapter of the Pocket Museum, Egypt in, in an international uh, world. Um, although I resisted mm. including this, this wonderful statue in the book, it's, it's one of my favourites in the Manchester uh, Museum collection. Was that solely because of the damage or for any specific reason? Um, it was partly to do with the damage, yes, you're right. We, we, I chose kind of atypically well-preserved uh, things ultimately for the oh. book. But also, <laughs> I, um, I was told by the editor of the book, the kind of overall editor, that I'd chosen too many statues. But but they yeah. statues. <laughs> Personal preference. Uh, everyone's got their criticisms. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. So now, Campbell, in this final section, I'd like to ask you what I ask everyone who I'm currently interviewing as part of this great series of interviews I'm doing with Egyptologists. What actually drew you to the field? Because in my experience, everyone has their own unique little story with their own quirks as to what drew them to ancient Egypt specifically. So when and how did you first discover ancient Egypt? My earliest memory, um, maybe aged about five years old, uh, was being taken to a museum in my native Glasgow uh, in the west of Scotland. Uh, very impressive civic museum, the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery and, and Museum, uh, by my grandparents and my parents. And I was immediately struck by the smell. The museum had a very distinctive smell, uh, which I thought was the smell of antiquity and of mummies, uh, but probably <laughs> was was actually floor polish. But <laughs> it was really striking around the same time. This is the bit I, I attempt to edit out for, for impressionable students. But around the same time, there was a cartoon on British television called Thundercats. I don't know if you had it in New Zealand. Um, but I'm familiar with it. Thundercats involved these cats, uh, kind of superheroes, and the baddie, Mumra, drew on all these pharaonic tropes so he lived in an onyx pyramid he was mummified <laughs> he he was generally pretty scary and i absolutely loved him and i had a little mumra toy that i would take with me to the museum and i remember my parents saying or my grandparents saying oh there's a mummy in the museum and the egyptian mummy and this is kind of what mumra is based on and i remember being uh disappointed that the mummy on display was was not like Mumra. It wasn't bandaged in kind of pristine white bandages. It was kind of <laughs> uh, looked quite dirty and disheveled, but was still fascinating. And that that kicked off a, a very deep seated interest in ancient Egypt. I, I began reading a lot of, of of books, kind of children's books about Egyptology. I remember a, an aunt, my great aunt, gave me, when I was a little bit older, so maybe eight or nine, uh, Howard Carter's book, The Tomb of Tutankhamun, uh, which was quite advanced for even a nine-year-old to to read, but I, I poured over every page and I was absolutely hooked. I think that really confirmed my interest in, in Egyptology. It wasn't until then I got to secondary school that I did anything about this because neither of my parents had been to university. But we in school did a, a work experience placement 
And while other people, you know, went to fire stations and bakeries and um, other interesting places, I wanted to go to a museum. And I went back to the museum or the same museum association uh, that, that, that first drew me uh, to, to the mummy in the case. And that was where the curator says you have to go to university, you have to get a degree. And Liverpool University is the best place. And so growing up in Scotland, certainly around the time when tuition fees were, were, were going to be free in Scotland and, and not in England, it was a big choice to, to, to go to England. But I went to Liverpool and that was, that was where I was, was based. That was, was how I, I trained to be an Egyptologist. That's quite, a, that's quite an excellent way to discover ancient Egypt. Yeah. I was, I'm, I was, I'm vaguely familiar with Thundercats from growing up, but I had no idea that his their their villain was specifically ancient Egyptian inspired. <laughs> yes. What really convinced you that Egyptology would and academic Egyptology specifically, rather than you know non professional, what convinced you that that was the lifestyle you wanted to get into? Because it's often said by you know any any mentor worth their salt that you should only pursue a field like this if you positively can't see yourself doing anything else yes so what what convinced you that this was the life you wanted to pursue i think if i'm being completely honest from that first encounter with the mummy in the museum in glasgow in kelvin grove from being very young before i even had a concept of what a university or kind of a job really would involve I, I I was going towards an academic job in, in Egyptology. I remember quite clearly having the idea of wanting to be a teacher. I liked the idea of teaching, but I also liked the idea of ancient Egypt. Mm. So either I was going to have to discover a time machine and go back to ancient Egypt and be a teacher in ancient Egypt, or I would have to <laughs> teach modern people about ancient Egypt. And I realized that was not what most mm. schools offered, but then the idea of universities kind of developed. And I remember writing to Egyptologists. I remember writing to uh, Aidan Dodson, um, and he gave me the very sound mm. advice that, you know, if you choose anything in school, of course, you don't study Egyptology really uh, in school, but uh, if you try and take a modern language, ideally French and German to help uh, read read um, scholarship in those languages, um, maybe take history, but do it only if you can't do anything else and you, you're really committed to it. And go along for the ride um, and enjoy studying it, knowing that you may not get a job out of it, because most people don't. And I think that's still sound advice. But it was really yeah. the secondary school experience of the work experience placement and settling down to, re I mean, I was most comfortable and most interested, and I devoured, rapaciously devoured any Egyptological books I could get my hands on. Uh, you know, my parents would, would, would buy me books from a book club, but I really knew um, that this was, this was it. This was what I wanted to do. And by the time I got to Liverpool University, of course, that was a, a fairly clear trajectory that if you wanted to, to make the most of this, you'd have to do a master's degree and you'd have to do a PhD and then you maybe could teach or work in a museum. Either either seemed equally interesting. Um, once I was in the university system, I remember being vaguely disappointed that my classmates, with a couple of exceptions, weren't as into ancient Egypt. 
they weren't as into Egyptology. I was amazed that they hadn't all devoured every book they could get their, their hands on. But then once you you settle on something really you you enjoy, usually that translates into uh, to some kind of academic um, success. I would say I did did quite well at university. Um, I got some funding to do a PhD. So that once I got the funding, and that was the key moment, uh, some some kind of uh, government research funding, that made me think, okay, other people think I'm fairly good at this. I could couldn't be paid to do it, and it was just by chance when I finished my PhD and had been working in uh, the Liverpool University uh, Garstang Museum uh, for the Egyptology collection, which was another piece of advice from Aidan Dodson go somewhere that has a good museum so you can get hands-on and it's not just in the abstract you're studying. Um, obviously, if you can get some experience in Egypt, that's good. But having had the experience in Liverpool, and especially I often get asked, how do you get on in Egyptology? Well, it wasn't being a great Egyptologist that got me a job in Manchester Museum. It was about having done outreach and having done sessions with, with primary school, disadvantaged primary school children, where they would come into a university setting, they'd learn about something, be it French or Spanish or medicine or biology or Egyptology. Uh, they'd have that for half, half a day, and myself and some other PhD students delivered that kind of teaching. So while as I was writing my thesis, I was also on, on a completely different level engaging with people uh, in, in, in the subject of ancient Egypt, I think that was what got me the job in, in Manchester Museum, which absolutely prides itself on on um, engaging with the widest uh, possible audience. Mm. That's lovely. That's great. What a nice idea to have those sort of outreach programs yeah. specifically. That's great. Looking Looking towards the sort of future, you're currently working on turning your PhD into a monograph. And... What avenues of research do you sort of have tucked away in the back of your, your notebook or your mind, thinking that you might like to pursue at some point in the future? That's that's a, a, a great question. I'm, I'm not so precious that I want to keep my research ideas a secret. Um, I mean, the, the thing that really, really interested me, and it fits my kind of museum uh, career, is is the ancient Egyptians' own idea of their own history and their own perception of objects like statues. So statues elicit very interesting responses in modern museums, and they're very interesting to observe. So my first priority is, is to, to rework um, my PhD, which is, is based on material from the Karnak Cachet, about 500 statues, not all of them as interesting as others, but many of which have interesting texts on them. So those texts concern mm -hmm. interaction, so how the statue was was made, when it was set up, was the person living or dead, who set it up, who dedicated it, and what expected interactions did the statue have. So current research and, and recently in-press work, recent publications have, have concerned this question of, of interactions with statues, late-period statues, there was the incidence, of course, of the, the, the statue of Senenmut. I, I previously hadn't been so interested in, in New Kingdom statuary. Um, but I think maybe this is going towards a, a, a separate uh, monograph about ancient Egyptian statues in society. Um, so I've, I've gathered quite a lot of material for that. 
And the other thing that I've become quite interested in just working in Manchester Museum is the perception of ancient Egypt and the construction of ancient Egypt in museums. So we have an incredible archive at Manchester Museum, an incredibly rich collection, very little of which is really known or published. So I think I would in the future like to do more with the Manchester collection and about how it's been interpreted in the past. And a number of colleagues, some of whom actually who have worked at Manchester Museum itself, have written very wonderfully about this, in particular Christina Riggs and Karen Excel, predecessors as curators mm. at the museum. I would like to I'd like to, to to contribute to that discussion. And then I would like to return perhaps in future to my fieldwork, my fieldwork in Egypt. I was based at the site of Saqqara with a wonderful uh, Scottish mission, the only Scottish mission working in Egypt under the aegis of the Glasgow Museums latterly, but previously the National Museum Scotland. And that was directed between 1990 and 2010 uh, by the the. the late, great um, Ian Matheson, retired civil engineer who turned his hand to, to Egyptian archaeology and who was really the number one inspiration to me. I only worked with Ian for the last five years of the project, but in that time, he really inspired me about Scottish people in Egypt, Scottish people making a contribution to Egyptology and thinking outside the box, especially with regard to, to sacred landscapes like the very rich one at Saqqara. So, we produced a lot of very interesting data. Uh, a lot of it is still being considered. So ultimately, I would like to spend, I think, more time again in Egypt. I used to spend more time as a student, but then ironically, when I got a job in Egyptology uh, itself, a paid job, that meant that uh, I was spending less time in Egypt. It's a curse, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's strange. People expect that um, I'm spending half the year out there, but of course, when you have a job, a full-time job somewhere else, you have to do the full-time job. And at the moment, yeah. that's not a priority. It may become a priority for Manchester Museum to engage more with Egypt. I hope it does. Um, but it hasn't in the past. That's what your annual leave is for. It's for you to do your actual work. Yes, exactly. Yes. But but one thing, one thing, a future thing, just to, to, to finish that, that result, mm-hmm. uh, the result of some of the, the things I do now, the thing I'm working towards now is, is a big exhibition notionally entitled Egypt's Golden Mummies, which will tour internationally, um, mm. maybe to the Far East, maybe to Australia and New Zealand. And so that's a great opportunity to curate a big exhibition. We've curated a couple of exhibitions uh, on animal mummies at Manchester Museum before with some great colleagues, uh, researchers in the University of Manchester. But this will be the first chance I get to entirely curate something on my own. Um, so that's something I'm looking forward to really delving into this incredibly rich part of the collection about Greco-Roman Egypt. Wonderful. Can you give us any sort of brief idea of what this is going to include uh, or might include? At the moment, uh, of course, there's lots of ifs and buts, but it looks like it would include over 100 objects and eight of our mummies, all from the Greco-Roman uh, period. Um, the so-called golden mummies, um, our collection is, is very strong because Flinders Petrie excavated particularly at the site of Hawara and the Fayum and the best collection pretty much not just of uh, gilded uh, masked uh, mummies but also painted portraits we have uh, eight or nine painted uh, Fayum portraits these incredible striking 
uh, panel portraits that were used to to cover the faces of mummies. Uh, one of the best collections in Europe is in Manchester Museum. And so in the future, in the next couple of years, we're closing for an extension, uh, partially closing. So we would like to take the, the, the kind of high points of the Egyptology collection out of the museum for the public to see. Mm. When are you planning to close? Uh, we're closing on the 1st of October. <laughs> as of, that's the current plan, that the 1st of October 2018 will close. Um, and we will be closed. The Egypt galleries will be closed uh, for two and a half years. So if any of your listeners are ah, planning to visit Manchester, try and get there before the 1st of October. Uh, otherwise, you know, I, I do a lot mm. on social media. Um, maybe we'll work on a catalogue, yep. who knows. Um, but you won't be able to see the permanent Egypt galleries before 2021 uh, with the plan that we'll have a major exhibition in 2022. No surprise. Uh, that's the centenary, of course, of, of Tutankhamun's tomb being discovered, where I guess a lot of people, especially in the UK, mm. will be doing things about Egypt. Uh, that, that's a shame because I'm hoping hoping to return to the UK next January. I'm running a tour to Egypt in in January and then hoping to come over for a few weeks to visit family ah. in the UK. And of course, I would have would have sure. thought of coming up to the museum, but if you're going to be closed, then oh well. <laughs> well. Yeah, that's a shame. There's plenty more to see around, um, and you, if you drop by, we could we could look at things in storage. I'm sure. Absolutely. Oh, that'd be lovely. I also do have friends and family in Liverpool, actually, so I will almost certainly come oh, up to that you? region. Oh, do you? Great. Oh, great. I will be in touch with you for certain. Please do. Please do, Dominic. Yeah. So let's let's wrap this up with um, one last question, which I had under the Manchester Museum um, topic, but you mentioned earlier that among the quite fortuitous discoveries in the in the sort of storage vaults of Manchester Museum was a new or a previously unrecognized statue of Senenmut. Yeah. That that sort of story of objects reappearing or being discovered in museum archives is not uncommon in academia, whether sure. it's Egyptology or any particular science. Which of course begs the question just how much incredibly valuable material has already been discovered but is still sitting in a museum vault having not quite been recognized for mm -hmm. what it actually is yeah if you had to guess how many how many objects of much valuable information do you think remains undiscovered in museum collections or even in private collections well i mean that's that's been a great advantage of working in a museum as as rich as as manchester museums uh, holdings of Egyptology are, it also gives you access both to other public collections, and by that I mean going around visiting colleagues, talking about displays, but also seeing what's in storage at other museums. And then it does begin to be a, an introduction to private collections. And I would say, based on my own experience just at Manchester, uh, when, when it dawned on me that there was a statue of Senenmut in our basement uh, in the storeroom. I mean, it was one of the most exciting uh, moments of my professional career, I don't mind telling you. And there have been some other things recently, um, what I would say are Egypt, significant Egyptological discoveries, which need to be written up for, for, for kind of academic journals. Um, I mean, in my time, so I've been at Manchester Museum seven years and I'd say, you know, there have been half a dozen things uh, that I think are, are, are quite noteworthy that I've tried to share on blogs and 
and in more formal uh, written publications. So in museum stores, you read about it fairly frequently, there are things unidentified. And what really needs to happen is those museum stores, the contents of them need to be known to specialists. Mm. Um, and I say specialist, now that can be anyone from you know a university professor who specializes in one particular area to a university researcher, a PhD researcher, an interested member of the public who knows one particular area quite well and can identify something the curator might have missed. Mm. Uh, that's how discoveries happen. But then there is another issue, as you've highlighted, there is an untold amount of material in private hands. Now, I know a couple of private collectors that conduct themselves with exemplary for their collections they hold, uh, and they, they are very responsible. One of the most depressing things about the field, about Egyptology at the moment, is the amount of material leaving Egypt illegally, um, being divorced from its context, and presumably disappearing into bank vaults all around the world, is at an unprecedented rate. So the danger, if I can be epic about it, the danger to science is that this material will simply never be seen. So it might as well have been destroyed. It's not been destroyed. It's been saved in a way, and it's gone into private hands. The issue now is to try and track that material, try and curb the material leaving Egypt illegally, uh, the damage being done to that material. Uh, leaving sites and try to get it understood and interpreted by, by uh, Egyptologists. So proportion-wise, I'd say every museum has something, depends on the size of the, the, the public museum, but certainly it's more likely that things in private collections contain discoveries because at least public museums will have maybe an online catalogue or some fairly regular access to, to people who might know something, whereas private collections tend not to publish their holdings in a printed catalogue, certainly not in an online catalogue, and they are less open and receptive to receiving specialists. Mm. And that's a, a sad reality. A sad reality, yeah. yeah. Hopefully one that we're... That's, I guess, the world we live in. Hopefully with time and effort we can either undo that or at least gain more access to it. Yeah, and I think we'll see. There, is, there is some positivity... Uh, some light in that the British Museum have started a, a project just recently um, with some colleagues working on circulated ar artifacts or artifacts on the on the trade market, not trafficking artifacts yet, but tracking artifacts on the art uh, market, on the, the legitimate art market. So that maybe is a good first step to charting what there is. Good. So there is hope. <laughs> Yes, I hope so. Well, that brings me to the end of all my questions. We clocked in at just two hours. I hope I haven't kept you too Great. long. Great. Wow. I've, yeah, I'm, I'm quite tired now. I'll have to go and have a coffee um, <laughs> to pick up and uh, do some other work. But no, it was a pleasure to, to speak to you. I, re I really did enjoy, especially those questions about the, the non-royal monuments. That was absolutely exemplary questioning. And that is the full interview with Dr. Campbell Price. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week for episode 102, An Egyptian Odyssey, in which we visit Greece.